I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. We are so glad to be back here for season two. Hell yeah. We told you that we wouldn't leave you hanging for long. Uh, We took a short break because unlike last year, instead of giving you all 20 episodes back to back, we're going to be doing two bouts of 10 episodes with a mid-year break in between. And we cannot wait to share with you what's in store for season two. To kick off our first episode of the year, we have director Nicholas McCarthy with us to talk about his horror films, The Pact and The Prodigy. Plus, a favorite of ours is celebrating its anniversary this week, and John has got some good-ass bud for us to smoke. I got some of that JJ. (laughs) All that and more today on High High on on Horror. Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Now it's time for Strain Wreck, the segment of our show where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. John's got some good shit for us today. I got that JJ. It's a 22.29% THC. It's a sativa. Like you said, it kind of smells like that garlic breath. That yeah, it's we got a garlic before. kick to it. A little bit of a garlic kick. It's like It has an earthy, earthy scent, a little bit of garlic. Keep the vampires away. And uh, I got some more of them King Palms. Uh, This time we got Magic Mint. Yeah, I I like that you chose mint because I've never had a mint-flavored blunt before. I'm not a big fan of mint, but uh, I've I've had just about every flavored blunt. I mean, when you're a blunt smoker, it happens. You're going to taste every kind of blunt. Uh, Watermelon, I I despise, but watermelon always comes up somehow. Um, So I'm interested to try mint. I mean, this is either going to go nice or i'm not gonna enjoy it but either way i was thinking uh, maybe it might have like that like menthol to it yeah but, i uh, mean either way you're gonna get me high as shit so yeah i was surprised you picked mint because i uh i bought mint i had the banana cream um i've had their watermelon before we had that for our uh season finale i think and uh the other one was mango which i had before uh we got together the mango one I wasn't a big fan of, but I really like their watermelon and I really like the banana cream. So I'm hoping the mint's pretty good. Yeah, the banana cream looked amazing, but mint to me just I don't know something about that said like it could go it could go really well um, if if it's good. So I figured just give it a shot. Um, but uh, earlier uh, you had said that uh, over the holiday you had gotten your fiance to watch the original Black Christmas. How'd that go? It actually went pretty well. Uh, Nicole had only ever seen the new one they did when she made me go see it in theaters. Which not is wait, horrible. not the tw- the 2006 one, the new one. Yeah, the 20. Well, I guess it's not new, but the newest one. It's like 2019, uh, maybe 2020. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't don't. I'm not concerned with the date either, but I know the one. <laughs> but uh, I was surprised she actually liked it, and then uh, all the shit she gave me for not liking the new one. About halfway through, I said, "How do you like it so far?" And she's like, "Oh, I can understand why." You didn't like the new one. I'm like, yeah, it didn't have anything to do with the politics. Just why is that movie called Black Christmas? There is like nothing except the only things they have in common is it's called Black Christmas. There's a sorority and there's a killer. Like that's about the only thing they have in common. But when when Nicole said to you that, uh, you know, she could see why you don't like the new one. Was that because like now she like sees that the original was good and like appreciates it more than the new one? Does she now dislike the new one or was she just saying like, oh, I could see the differences in these. That's why you don't like it. I think she still likes the newer one. I'd have to ask her, but come she, on, Nicole. She, <laughs> she, she understands that the reason I didn't like it is because they're, it's not the same movie. Like 
they literally just share the same title. Like, yeah. there's really no connection. But she was talking about the phone calls, and she's like, "Why, why, why wouldn't you just hang up?" I was like, "No, nah, I would hang on just to see how how like creative uh, Billy got." And you're pretty immune to trolls too, so you can take a beating. He would just be able to say whatever the fuck he wanted to, and you would just laugh at him. I would be the Mar the Margaret uh, Kidder. Uh, who was it? Bev. I'm trying to. Bev, I think. I think I'm right, but uh, yeah, I would definitely be more more <laughs> Sorry, like I'm, her. I'm, I'm, I'm recovering over here. It definitely does have a mint flavor to it. But yeah, it's a uh, yeah Black Christmas, as we said in our Christmas episode. That's that's a well, I watch it every year. Um, I just got the Scream Factory Blu-ray of it, and uh, I, I got to listen to the the missing audio or the restored audio rather. I have to check um, that out. And it was definitely uh, it was definitely worth. Uh, worth buying and i'm glad that i get to see the film in its original intended uh viewing uh the way you were intended to view it rather um but yeah that that's great that she liked it now you got to get her to watch the 2006 one yeah that one's not too bad they just progressively get worse and margaret kidder was barb not bev i, I knew it was a b i couldn't yeah. say anything bro i was choking over here i was i was this blood had me going sorry about that how, how you feel about the men in there hold on i mean the the smell it tastes good I, i'll be honest i don't mind it it's, it's a, a strong it's, a, it's, like a, it's like a candy cane that's a yeah that's a that's a good example that's the thing i like about these king palm things is it's just got it's almost like uh what was it the salems that you would crush yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah the, the camel flavor. crushes the camel crushes yeah. i used to smoke those yeah yeah they would either be regular but then if you crushed them they were menthol yeah the blue Which, yeah it's yeah, kind of yeah, totally. almost exactly what this is doing I yeah absolutely um so okay let me ask you something else look it's our first episode of you know the new year I gotta ask you uh what horror films are you looking forward to this year uh let's get the obvious one out of the way <laughs> I was gonna say scream um our most hyped up movie obviously for the both of us is Halloween ends uh but we also have you know the new scream orphan first kill the prequel the black phone Jordan Peele's new film hope uh I'm sorry nope Nope. Uh, the Hellraiser reboot, the <sighs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel, entitled uh, titled the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I hate when they do that, just like Halloween did it, where they just use the title of the original film, even though it's just a sequel. Uh, there's Evil Dead Rise, um, Terrifier Two. Like, so what are you looking forward to besides Halloween Ends? You just touched the uh, right there at the end. Uh, my number two is uh, Terrifier Two. I'd love to get David on here again after that comes out. I'm excited for that. Scream is another one. Um, I don't know about the orphan one. Isn't uh, Jeepers Creepers got one? Yeah, Jeepers Creepers Reborn. I mean, I didn't even mention that because I don't know how that's going to turn out. The hype behind that one for me is more of a, I'll see how it goes. I'm not going to put too much faith behind it after that third one. I have no idea what we're going to get into with this new one. The Hellraiser one, I have no interest. Um I don't know if you could consider it a horror movie, but uh, uh, Morbius coming out. I'm not a big Jared Leto fan, but yeah, Morbius, the uh, Marvel movie, yeah. The uh, the trailers look real good. And like I said, I'm not a big Jared Leto fan, but from seeing from the trailers the way the movie's going, I feel like it's it's a good pairing with him in it. 
Oh, and it's uh, I agree. I, I do like Jared Leto um, as a person. Um, uh, he's done some things that said some things I don't agree with. But as an actor, I have no problem with him. Uh, and I, I like the fact that Morbius is setting up Blade to be in the Marvel Universe. So that even makes me back the movie even more. Or as I've been asking for a billion times, possible Maximum Carnage because he's in that as well. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I mean, it could all tie in. Um, but uh, for me, um, my, my the the three for me, uh, well. The four after Halloween ends, which is obviously the the big one, like I said, uh, Black Phone, and uh, oh shit, yeah, I forgot about Black Phone. I don't <laughs> I know how, I don't know how the fuck I left that off the list. Yeah, that's yeah. As I said, I I forget what episode. Well, was our uh, uh, what the fuck? I can't think of the movies. Our sinister reviews, like Ethan yeah. Hawke and Hart. Like Just a I like I like. I like everything he's done, so yeah, I, I can't believe I forgot about Black Phone, but that got pushed back, didn't it? Yeah, now it's it went from a, a early twenty two uh, twenty two release date to now it's uh, June twenty twenty two. So yeah, it got pushed back several a couple of months actually, which sucks. But um, was but, there any specific reason? Do you remember? No, not that I know. I think it might have been timing. I think the movie they might think that that's a, a better timing to release it, might make more money. Um, you know, I know like the the December and uh january are you know considered like bad months to release yeah, but movies. they're pumping out scream this month i know i know it's a ballsy move i mean that's you know but um but yeah so uh black phone uh terrifier 2 um and uh hellraiser for me um I, i'm really looking forward to nope the though the new jordan peele movie uh i can't wait for them all though honestly i hope they all kick ass the world's in a tough place right now we could all use a win horror fans included i hope these movies deliver um black phone uh, you know, like we talked about, Joe Hill, Scott Derrickson, Ethan Hawke. We've said it before. Say no more. Sign me up. Yeah. Um, but Hellraiser, they have a chance to do it right this time. And they have the right competent people working on the show and the movie. Um, so it, it, it could work out. You know, fingers crossed. People bitch that Pinhead is a female now and being played by a female. But in the novel, The Hellbound Heart, Pinhead is described as a female or unknown gender, androgynous in other words. So on paper, he wasn't Pinhead wasn't the masculine, deep-voiced Cenobite leader we all know and love played by Doug Bradley. He did a great job, but let's see how Jamie Clayton does. Um, Terrifier, we need more Arctic Clown in this world, period. Bring it on. And um, I gotta say, yeah, this shit that we're smoking is fucking golden. Um I can't wait for you to see what I have for us next week. Just wait and see. Uh, you're gonna see. You're gonna smell what I'm cooking. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> so, what do you got going on this week in horror history? This week in horror history. All right, this week in horror history, uh, we left you with some bad ones on the uh, season finale. But this week we had Dracula, Prince of Darkness, turned 56 years old. Oh uh, my God, man! Yeah, this is this is a good week for uh horror history um yeah um also christopher lee is my favorite dracula uh dracula prince of darkness is my favorite of his uh of his run as dracula um actually i just realized that the satanic rites of dracula celebrates a birthday this week as well it turns 49 oh nice uh, yeah the satanic rites of dracula is five sequels after dracula prince of darkness and lee's final portrayal as dracula the next hammer film came after came a year after that in 74 which was the legend of the seven golden vampires which was a kung fu vampire mashup and it was a fucking mess i mean kung fu vampires does sound badass on paper though no, not not from not from the seventies. <laughs> That's fair. 
Uh, we have the Relic, uh, turned 25, came out in 1997. Uh, dude, I love the Relic. The Relic is such an underrated, uh, underappreciated monster film. Uh, it got heat. This is one of those ones I remember when it came out. It got heat when it came out. Like, everybody was bitching about it and not liking it. But now everyone that remembers it likes it. Uh, the the Cathoga is a motherfucking scary bastard, and the design is just another Stan Winston Studios home run out of the park. I love it. Oh um it's it's yeah that that fucking monster is crazy looking has stan winston done any bad creatures i mean no i mean he's probably the greatest of all time there's no question <laughs> i'd have to agree with that and uh we got leatherface the texas chainsaw massacre 3 from 1990 turning 32 years old i got I, nothing i want to uh, say yeah, about i was that gonna one, say brother. i was gonna say the same thing i don't think there's really anything we need to say about that uh the first Tales from the Crypt featured Demon Knight from 1995. That turned 27 years old. Oh, man, yeah, Demon Knight, the first Tales from the Crypt film. Uh, that movie fucking rocks. Uh, Billy Zane gives the performance of his fucking lifetime in that movie. Prove me wrong. Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, director Ernest Dickerson uh, also did the Snoop Dogg movie Bones, which gets a lot of shit, but it's fun. And uh, you know what? Look, fuck it. Let me put it to you this way. Those of you out there who don't want to, who, who want to shit on bones, let me put it to you this way. When you see an evil Snoop Dogg smoking a cigar or a blunt or whatever the fuck it is on the cover or on the poster, you know what you're getting into. Don't bitch that it's a bad movie. Bones is a fun movie. <laughs> uh, I have to say the Tales from the Crypt, both of those uh, features have badass names. Demon Knight, Bordello of Blood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Demon Knight's a much superior film, but uh, uh, Bordello of Blood is fun. And yeah, the, the title is the titles were Dennis Miller good. was in Bordello of Blood, right? He was the worst part about that movie, too. Yeah, I don't mind Dennis Miller, but it was weird to have him in a uh, Tales from the Crypt movie. And he just like made fun. The whole thing was he hated being on set. So he like literally just like made fun of the movie while making the movie. Like even like his <laughs> lines, like this seems like a bad Tales from the Crypt episode. Like he was very disrespectful and didn't respect the product. And that just obviously shows in the movie. So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, moving on 41 years old 1981 scanners oh man um scanners is a quintessential cronenberg film this is the movie that defined him and established him uh knowledge nugget the famous head exploding scene was accomplished with pet food and a shotgun also michael ironside wore dustin hoffman's eyes from little big man in a scene i mean the exploding head whenever you say scanners it's the first thing that comes to mind yeah absolutely um, you know, and, uh, again, you know, like I just, I got a love for all of these movies, man. You know, like I've been watching them like most of my life practically. And our main attraction this week, turning 33 years old, 1989 classic Pumpkinhead. Oh, hell yeah, man. I mean, why don't you start? <laughs> I mean, uh, Lance Hendrickson could do no wrong in the eighties in my mind. And, uh, I got Nicole to watch it this year. I always put it on my, I mean, it's required watching in october it's always on my hard list just like halloween Pumpkinhead finds some date in there to fit in nicole thought Pumpkinhead was okay i asked if she wanted to watch any of the sequels and that was a quick no but uh yeah again more more great creature design Pumpkinhead's badass looking it's iconic even people that haven't seen the movie at least recognize the creature another stan winston creation that's just aged like yep. it just his creations just age that's the thing it doesn't even Pumpkinhead today doesn't look dated people look at Pumpkinhead and still go he's fucking badass and that's awesome you know um and I, I, what you just said about nicole um yeah my wife sam's the same way she uh i don't think that she likes Pumpkinhead or appreciates it for, uh, for the movie that it is 
but she definitely like thinks he's cool looking and does appreciates the design um but yeah as we mentioned before when we had gotten a puff puff ask um question um a couple episodes ago so, uh, we were talking about favorite monsters and everything and i brought up Pumpkinhead. um Pumpkinhead was the first monster movie that i fell in love with it's that simple i dug the creature design uh the country bumpkin feel the simplicity of it it's a uh, simple straight to the point monster film after godzilla Pumpkinhead reigns at number two for me you know i watched it a thousand times growing up with my mom and sister uh, i met lance henriksen a couple of years ago and got him to sign my pumpkin head print uh, yeah that's somebody i definitely want to want to meet he's such a cool guy dude you know and i have pictures of him talking to and high-fiving my son you know and my son knew who he was and recognized him and as a lifelong fan of that movie that kind of that moment kind of cemented something eternal i, I know that sounds cheesy <laughs> as fuck i know but it did like that movie and its importance is cemented you know not to be replaced and uh you know it's just abel my son you know it's uh he's a huge fan of that movie and it was his first big monster movie too that he got hooked on so it means a lot to me to be able to share that with him you know um here's here's something i wanted to bring up to you that i thought that you would think is cool as shit knowledge nugget the cabin that haggis the witch lives in is the same cabin from friday the 13th part four the final chapter my favorite in the series Oh, I was hoping you were going to say part five. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of that house, Lance Henriksen said that he believes somewhere under the house, some of those silver dollars that he pays haggis with reside. Some of them apparently fell through the four floorboards during filming. Could you imagine going out there and searching for them and Let's finding do them? It. I'd do it. <laughs> Would you do it? I'd do it. I'd do it. But then like we get, we get halfway like started. I'd be like, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, Here's another knowledge nugget for you. Uh, the scene where uh, Dead Billy sits up in Ed's truck and uh, looks at Lance Hendrickson. And he says, I think he says, um, I've seen the movie so many times I should know. He either says, uh, what'd you do, Dad? Or why'd you do it, Daddy? Whatever it is. Like, it's like the, the premonition that he has. That scene is what got Lance Hendrickson to agree to do the movie. And um, also, the scene where Lance is washing Billy's hands with the hose and he talks about how soft his grandmother's skin was. All of that was ad-libbed by Lance. That's interesting. And I, I really like Pumpkinhead because you don't get too many Lance Hendrickson lead features. Agreed. And he carries a movie well. He's good at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything else, it was mostly he was playing supportive roles, aliens. Uh, was it Terminator? I mean, he did like Man's Best Friend where he was doing uh, lead yeah. roles, but they weren't like, he wasn't like a. I forgot about that. He one. wasn't a major from and He was never considered a Tom Cruise. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's probably what three feet taller than him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, let's. I mean, Tom Cruise has had some good movies despite him as an individual, but that's fair. Yeah, um, but I'm not big into Tom Cruise's action movies. It's like a few, a few, a few good men is probably my favorite Tom Cruise movie. I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible movies. Brain Man was good, but the first, the first Mission Impossible was good. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, well. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked talking about Tom Cruise here. Yeah, I think that's about all I got for Pumpkinhead. Yeah, what about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, so uh, I think now we'll get on to Puff Puff Ass, the segment of our show where we get viewer questions from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now it's time for Puff Puff Ask, the segment of our show where we answer questions that you, the listeners, write into us on social media at High on Horror 420 or email at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com or the website highonhorror.com. I'll go first. 
Chris from Lubbock, Texas. I hope I said that right. Lubbock, Texas. I think it's Lubbock. Lubbock, Texas. Says, uh, hey, Drew and John, love the podcast. I get baked and listen to your podcast every Monday morning before work. You guys rock. Thank you, Chris. He says, uh, I was going to say, uh, you should find a way to listen on company time, get paid for it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's the life right there. <laughs> uh, he asks, Chris wants to know, uh, what's our favorite snack when we have the munchies and are watching horror movies? Uh, he says, I like fruit snacks and any kind of chip. Um, yeah, I'm going to agree with that, Chris. Any kind of chip is right. Um, right now. It's the uh, the hot spicy cheese curls by hers. They're they're hitting the spot for me right now. I can't. I'm addicted to those fucking things. I've been eating a lot of that Chex Mix lately, but uh, I would say for movies, I love nachos. Is always a go to. Yeah, uh, Doritos are the shit. Um, but with the munchies, it doesn't matter. Give me some sour cream and onion, and call it a day. Or barbecue. Don't got that. Give me some classic. The chip game is real for stoners. Uh, but my favorite snack is the hostess apple pies i like to have one of the little hostess apple pies with a cold glass of milk and uh, this is good yeah and i like to just you know slam a pie down after a fat bong pack but uh you remember i i have that nacho machine from when i used to work at the movie theater and it closed down man i i haven't used that thing in a couple years but i used to go to the kitchen store and just buy bags of nacho cheese just have that shit (laughs) running man (laughs) Dude, was I don't pr- even want to know how much your fucking insides were probably made of nacho cheese for like a year. Oh man, dude, I never got tired of eating that when I worked at the theater. Like, I got tired of popcorn. I hate popcorn. Don't buy popcorn. It's horrible. <laughs> I seen. I feel like uh, you've seen Couples Retreat, yeah. where uh, where the one guy, his girl, his 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 young girlfriend, is like, oh no, I don't eat seafood. I seen the shit they do. Yeah, I don't eat popcorn because I've seen how that shit gets handled, so that's good for me. And then, Understood, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, every once in a while I'll get a craving and I'll try and I'll be like, no. But I usually, yeah, the other thing I like, but the only place I can ever get it usually is the theater, is them, uh, Pizza Hut, Personal Pan Pizzas, the Pepperoni Johns. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, those are great for the movies. And then uh, always got to have a pib. Every time we go to the movies and they don't have those pizzas, you're always so disappointed. You go into like a depression fit. Yo, I was so mad when I went to go see Spider-Man Far From Home. Or No Way Home. They didn't have it. And then when I left, they were freshly putting them out. I was like, damn it, I'm going to go buy one. (laughs) Did you? you I went went and bought one and took it home with me. (laughs) Hey, hey, you got to do what you got to do. I got to say, I'm going to be honest over real quick. Let me cut in. I actually enjoyed the mint wrap more than this banana cream one. Really? Yeah. I, dude, I love that banana cream one. Yeah, we, uh, we're smoking the uh, banana cream king palm this time. We got that uh, that guptilla. Well, we've Gup-tilla? talked about that one. <laughs> we've talked about that one before. But, uh, yeah, I guess we'll get on to our second question. Uh, Glenn from Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he wanted to know what some of our favorite horror movie quotes are. Ooh. Look, here's one you're probably not going to say, but I got to say it because of a guest we've had on. Wherever the red dot goes, you bang. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A, that's a good one. That, uh, I I mean, anything Dr. Loomis says in the original Halloween. Yeah. Um, especially Death Has Come to Your Little Town. That was mine, 100%. I yeah. mean, nobody's seen it but i mean i have it right here as a sticker on my laptop that's what i had john carpenter write on his album when i met him freddie's got two good ones let's get high 
And the other one, I mean, it's the classic one. Welcome to prime time, bitch. I mean, those are probably his our favorite lines. But if we actually were to, dude, Freddie's got a lot of good ones. Um, my personal favorite line of all time is, uh, "Your mother sucks cocks in hell." How did I forget about that one? Really, you forgot about that? Ooh, one? Oh, I got one for you. Grab a tool and bang. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> like Elvira, start banging, yeah. Um, uh, here, uh, Poltergeist they're here that shit still sends chills down my spine every time i don't I know hear also like from poltergeist uh you move you moved that tombstones but you didn't move the bodies yeah what about uh here's johnny i mean that's a classic garbage day <laughs> oh god you bring it up again <laughs> why do you always bring up silent night deadly day too oh, i debated i was like i gotta throw it in there like you finally fucking stopped bullying rob zombies halloween and now you gotta bring this shit up every fucking episode <laughs> okay if you had your choice would you rather be just trash rob zombie <laughs> or but, bring or bring a garbage day once an episode i guess garbage day is better because at least you kind of enjoy that so you know i don't have to hear you get all angry and sweaty <laughs> angry and sweaty that's <laughs> fucked up um okay what about uh um okay well anything that ash says from the evil dead series like uh groovy you know um hold on john's dying over here (laughs) you gotta stop pulling on the blunt so hard bro gotta pull in sympathy uh viewers for the first episode (laughs) um all right what about uh i know you uh, we just talked about rob zombie so i'm gonna say it captain spaulding played by the great late sid haig one of my favorite lines of all time is in the devil's rejects when he is point blank facing a gun at his face and he does not back down an inch. He fucking calls the the perpetrator a crazy pig fucking dumbass pussy piece of shit. <laughs> I got I got that dude had Captain Spotting had balls, man. Come on. I love Captain Spotting. I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen that clip. Um, the dawn of the dead when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk to earth. Come on. I was sick. And also the, uh, alien series well i guess aliens although i guess it's more considered an action than a horror but whatever it's so hard get away from her you bitch or the or the classic uh bill paxton game over game over man oh you came over man um we'll tear your soul apart hellraiser classic oh it was funny because one of the ones going in when i read the question that uh i forgot just popped in the first one of the first ones i thought of was jesus wept i mean oh yeah that's that's legendary too man that's uh i didn't mean to call you a meatloaf jack american world from london <laughs> going back to the jesus wet i got somebody on my facebook posted uh bible script and they you know jesus wept so i posted the photo of frank with all the hooks in his face and it said jesus wept my he quickly deleted my comment oh my god you always just got to push those buttons, don't you? Not always, but <laughs> a lot, you. I mean, uh, dude, oh my God, there's so many quotes. There's so many quotes. And, and the answer was, what's our favorite? Like I said, I guess mine's your mother sucks cocks in hell. But I mean, honestly, I could keep listing quotes all fucking night. It's, that's, that's a tough question. Death has come to your little town. That's your answer? Yeah. All right. That's, I mean... Who, who it's classic who else who else can deliver lines as good as donald pleasance in horror movies agreed and who uh, what other movie could have a line like your mother sucks cocks in hell and have it not be taken like funny and have it actually just be like still vulgar and still just like uncomfortable of a statement to make i'm telling you i want her to autograph that on something for me one day but i don't think she will i don't know she just might charge you extra for it you never know i mean you'll have to wait and find out 
Money, I, I'm going to say probably money worth it. <laughs> if she did it, I'd agree. I mean, it'd be pretty. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody like have I that said, I'm, before. Like I said, I'm still jealous of uh, your uh, Freddy, Freddy figure out in the other room. Oh yeah, because I got him to write "Let's Get High" on it. Oh yeah, man, that was that was great. That and uh, my Dream Warriors figure. I had that, to get that. And set. I mean, that's you fine. do have my quote on Carpenter's album. That's true. I told you, damn. I said if I met him, that's what I would want him to write. Right. That's that's definitely true. Yeah. So we definitely either that or the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. We go. So what's our favorite Jason quote? <laughs> Wherever the red dot goes, you bang. There you go. That works. Um, don't forget to write oh. in your... Oh, hold on, oh. hold on, hold on. A revelation. A revelation indeed. A friend with weed is a friend indeed. But oh, a friend with God. gold is the best, I'm told. What about uh, Judd Crandall from Pet Cemetery? You don't want to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was good. I don't know what was funnier or more fucked up, me... Dude, How, I've seen my so voice, many, my accent was so terrible there. Dude, I've seen so many videos where they just trash him on uh, YouTube and just 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 make fun of his voice so much. Um, all right, well, uh, you listeners, uh, don't forget to write in your questions to us on all social media platforms at High on Horror 420, or email us at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com or on the website highonhorror.com. Now let's talk about the pact and the prodigy. We'll start with The Prodigy from 2019. And we have Sarah and John Bloom, uh, played by Taylor Schilling from uh, Orange is the New Black on Netflix. And Peter Mooney, they have a son, Miles, played by Jackson Robert Scott. He shows signs of rapid development and extreme intelligence. Uh, It's a horror movie, so that's not going to last long. Everything turns into a livid nightmare when Miles' behavior becomes increasingly erratic and violent by his eighth birthday. After seeking help from two experts, Sarah's horrified to learn that her prodigy may be under the influence of a dark and supernatural force. Miles hurts his babysitter during a prank. He claims he has no knowledge and doesn't remember anything. Uh, Later, he attacks a classmate with a wrench. That was pretty fucking crazy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, Sarah takes him to a psychiatrist, and she plays a tape of Miles speaking gibberish. Uh, the psychiatrist passes it along to some more colleagues we find out and then uh it isn't actually gibberish it's a uh, rare dialect of hungarian and uh, earlier we talked about some of our favorite lines well maybe add this one to the list uh translated i'll cut your eyes out and watch you die whore <laughs> <laughs> how was that not one of our uh, favorite uh, horror quotes maybe me maybe because it was hungarian it's hard <laughs> it's harder for us to say that's true <laughs> Well, now in comes Arthur Jacobson. He's an expert on rebirth and reincarnation. Sarah refuses to believe Miles is the host for an evil spirit. His dad, John, leaves for a bit after Miles recorded his parents' bedroom with a baby monitor. That's some, like, creeper shit right there. Yes, that's 100% creeper. Dude, I don't know how I'd react to that. That's pretty pretty wild. Agreed. uh, Like, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, Uh, You definitely know there's some problems or something going on. Something ain't right. Yeah. Uh, Miles says he's sorry and that something inside of his dreams is telling him to make room. 
After some therapy sessions with Jacobson, the word Skarka is clawed into the couch. Edward Skarka is a former serial killer who died, and Jacobson thinks he's trying to continue his spree through Miles. Upon researching Edward, Sarah finds out that he died only minutes before Miles' birth, and she's startled to see, like Miles, he has two different colored eyes. Sarah and John decide to commit Miles, but on the way there, he stabs his father and leaves him in a coma. While he's in a coma, Sarah searches in Miles' room and sees stuff about Edward and the crimes that he committed, and also a book from Margaret St. James, the final victim of Edward's who survived and actually helped in his arrest. Sarah decides to kill Margaret and hopefully end Edward's need of Miles' body. Well, uh, Miles, Edward, whatever you want to call him, uh, he beats Sarah to it and he disembowels Margaret. So Sarah now believes Edward has left Miles' body, doesn't need it anymore. But uh, it's the complete opposite. Miles is gone and Edward's now assumed complete control of his body. So now Sarah attempts to shoot the now Edward and then Sarah gets full on the omen and gets <laughs> shot by a hunter and dies instantly. Now Miles goes to his foster care until John is healthy enough to care for him. And the movie ends with Miles staring in the mirror, but we see Edward's reflection. Dude, imagine that's, that's a fucked up shit. He's just going to wait for John to get out of hospital and just fuck him up. That's a dark, dark movie, man. Yeah, dude, and Jackson Robert Scott was really impressive in it, playing both roles. Like he did a really good job. I agree. Um, I definitely like definitely like the Prodigy. It's a strong outing. Um, like I just said, the story is very dark. Uh, it's overall in general a uh, creepy movie. It's a good date movie for sure. Uh, evil kid horror films always work with women. <laughs> trust me. Uh, this definitely ranks up there as one of the better evil evil children movies. Like um. There's some good ones like uh, The Omen, uh, the sequel, you know, um, Mikey, Village of the Damned, both versions. Um, the Good Son with Macaulay Culkin. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and I then, feel like that's the classic, like, fucked up kid movie. Agreed. Um, and then there's, you know, there's the schlock, like uh, the Canadian horror film, uh, Kathy's Curse from 1977. Just awful. Um, <laughs> the, the Prodigy gives us that performance from Jackson Robert Scott, like you just said, uh, that gives it that edge, like the good son, where it's definitely a keeper, man, for sure. Uh, 7.5 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I, w I would give it like an 8. I feel... I feel I really liked it. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a while till I rewatched it. Uh, I'd last actually just seen it in theaters. And I remember the thing that stuck with me the most, what was really Jackson's acting. Like he did really well playing both, both those roles and played them both. Well, Yeah, it, it's funny because you know, he, he plays such a, he can play a creepy kid. Like he played the sweet, innocent little Georgie in uh, both it films. And then you see him when he's also like, pennywise georgie yeah and he's creepy as fuck and then you see him in this movie literally playing a good kid and then a little backstabbing asshole literally a backstabbing asshole <laughs> um yeah. you know but uh you know it's like yeah he's the little boy's got range it's like he's either like this adorable little boy who's like so sweet and all uh, gentle or he's this like evil conniving son of a bitch um he does a good job for real yeah uh the other uh other one i compared to would be like uh the orphan we were that's an about orphan that. yeah i was just gonna yeah. say that's another one. i mean technically you know spoiler alert it's yeah. not really a child but yeah. technically that's the twist yeah orphan yeah. if yeah orphan ranks up there as one of the best as well absolutely orphan's amazing yeah i feel like that i kind of got the same feels 
if you will, from, yeah, from this that I got from watching Orphan, just like, oh shit, like, oh shit, what's gonna happen? Yeah, definitely. And uh, it was, uh, it was like, um, Orphan was more of a thriller where, uh, the prodigy was just darker it was just darker in tone all altogether just more of a dreary movie to watch more of a heavier undertaking yeah then jackson did this between the two uh it movies yeah he's, he has three he has movies. three 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 straight horror movies yeah yep, back to back to back and they're all good did you like uh i know, I know we're talking about uh the prodigy but it chapter one versus it chapter two well, which one did you like better i like it chapter one more i think that the kids and their story is always more uh, intriguing and entertaining than the adults, even in the book and in the original uh, TV movie. Um, but I do will say that I do like the ending and the conclusion more in Chapter 2 than I like of the uh, TV movie. Yeah, I will say the adults are definitely better in the uh, in the newer newer Part 2 compared to the uh, miniseries. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I think with that, uh, that's about all I got to say about The Prodigy. You ready to move on to The Pact? Hell yeah. The Pact is a 2012 supernatural horror film that's also not a supernatural horror film. It manages to be both. It centers around Annie, played by Katie Lotz. Her mother dies, and she wasn't close with her mother, so she doesn't want to attend the funeral. But while staying in their childhood home, Annie's sister disappears. Annie comes into town to sort her affairs and find her sister. The search for her sister leads Annie down a path of ghosts, dark histories and the revealing of a serial killer known as the judas killer that has put her smack dab next on his list this movie is 90 minutes of pure dread intention it's scary as shit nine out of ten uh absolutely for me nine out of ten it's goddamn near perfect um nicholas mccarthy was 40 when he made this his first feature at 40 and he fucking killed it what a strong first outing um i have been an advocate of this movie since i saw it if you're listening right now and you have not seen the pact uh please do yourself a favor and rent it on amazon or wherever it's available i think you can rent it on youtube um, I can't stress this enough. You need to see this movie. This is a true horror film, a pure horror film. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, yeah, I think another one I I would give it an eight as well. As well, eight as well compared to uh, the Prodigy. I think they're both they're both well done. But I got to ask you, what's your favorite pack? Is it the Pact, <laughs> X Pack, or NWO Wolf Pack? <laughs> uh nwo wolf pack i don't know i'd probably go to the pack the movie <laughs> <laughs> well yeah if that's nobody, still an nobody, option nobody's picking x pack <laughs> no nobody wants that why again with the wrestling the wrestling references i don't okay <laughs> <laughs> it works i mean you got wrestlers in horror movies right yeah i mean horror and wrestling why not i mean booker t was at one from, from back from you, <laughs> from episode two you wouldn't be you if you weren't always throwing something in to fuck me up yeah i mean that is my job but uh yeah we had the uh monster from stranger things is in this movie and uh the main main actress uh katie lutz uh she went on to uh carve out a nice role for herself in the flash universe i I like how you said the monster from stranger things is in this movie like you just like like it's at the actual denny gorgon it is (laughs) (laughs) you just opening that man with that tongue 
you're, you're just acting like it's just like a demigorgon just like hiding in the walls. It's the actor Mark Steger who plays the no. demigorgon. He, he's the monster. Could you imagine just I having mean, that's, a demigorgon that's actually in your what wall? he's credited with on Stranger Things, though. It's just listed as the monster. Oh, no kidding? I don't know why they don't list it as a demigorgon. I don't know. I mean, huh? So, I'm the one being technical over here this time. <laughs> well, you do you, boo-boo. You don't, you don't mislabel his name. No, but, uh, but yeah, definitely. Um, the pact is one of those ones that, uh, if you want a scary movie, turn off the lights, close the windows, pull on a blanket, pack a self, pack yourself a bong, open a beer, pour a glass of wine, do whatever you do, you know, whatever, whatever gets you in the mood to relax. If and I can watch, make it two bongs <laughs> and, or a couple blunts. And uh, watch the pact. Um, Lizzie City. It's not. It's not a lighthearted movie. It's gonna have you jumping out of your fucking seat, and it's it's nail biting tension. I'm telling you, I can't recommend this movie enough. Um, now let's get into Burn and Learn. Oh. Hmm. Burn and Learn. Now let's get into Burn and Learn, the segment of our show where we read all trivia facts about the movies we're talking about. And in this case, it's The Prodigy and The Pact. Michael Bean was first in mind to be cast as Creek. However, Bean declined the role and Casper Van Dien stepped in. The names Jennifer Glick and Charles Barlow are both names used in Stephen King's vampire novel, Salem's Lot. The last name's Glick and Barlow. Uh, this one is interesting. Complete heterochromia iridum which literally means different colored iris is the condition that Annie has where both of her eyes are different colors. Medical experts still have no idea what causes this, but think it's linked with being lack of genetic diversity. 1970 Honda CB 350 is the bike that Annie drives in the film. Now let's move into the prodigy from 2019. Although Miles is compared to David Bowie because of their different colored eyes, their conditions vary. Miles has heterochromia, while Bowie has anascoria, which causes one pupil to be bigger than the other, given the illusion of different colored eyes. Interesting. And um, in Miles' case, his right eye is hazel and his left eye is blue. And uh, like we said earlier, Jackson Robert Scott filmed three horror films in a row as The Prodigy was filmed in between It Chapter 1 from 2017 and It Chapter 2 from 2019. Uh, Miles Bloom, uh, the name was inspired by Miles and Flora from the 1961 film The Innocents. The character of Miles shares a birthday with the actor Calm Fiora, August 22nd, who plays Arthur Jacobson in the film. And now let's talk with the man who directed both of these films, Nick McCarthy. Our guest today worked on short films until he busted into the film industry in 2012 with the instant classic, The Pact. He's done work on the new Are You Afraid of the Dark reboot. He's directed At the Devil's Door and the 2019 hit, The Prodigy. Welcome, Nicholas McCarthy. Thank you for being on High on Horror. 
Oh man, I'm happy to be here. I, I, I totally approve of the concept of your, your podcast. Uh, well, we appreciate that. Uh, so do you smoke? Uh, and how often? <laughs> well, let's just say those, those days of heavy smoking are behind me in my, in my middle age, but I am, uh, I, I am no stranger to the devil's weed. Right. But right now I'm enjoying my so a little it. glass of rum. No, I, 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 I support with all my heart, like all my pocket <laughs> friends. Yeah. I saw one of you guys just blowed some, blew some smoke too. Right. So yeah, I was, ha- I was, I was going to ask, uh, well, what is your uh, favorite way to consume? Uh, is it smoking <laughs> edibles? You know, it never was edibles for me. It was always smoking, which is becoming more and more old school, right? But like a, yeah, a, jo- yeah. a joint, just a joint. Like it, like it's like the 1970s. That's how I like it, you know? It still does the job. Yeah, I, I guess I'm uh, more of an older stoner in that mindset that I, that I prefer smoking compared to the other stuff. If I'm only going to pick one, it would just have to be just smoking the flower itself. Yeah. No, there's there's a there's a romance to it. That's true. Uh, now you you have a lot of horror on your resume. Uh, what attracted you to the genre? Well, I mean, I guess like it's a familiar story, you know. Like, I think the more horror fans that I meet, the more I realize I'm, you know, like we all sort of have a similar story where it it just sort of is somehow programmed into our brains, right? Where like you see something as a little kid, and it's like um, you're drawn to it like a magnet. And so I didn't know, you know, what, why I was doing everything I could to watch every kind of horror movie that I could growing up. It just was the thing that I needed to do. And and I didn't really know anybody else who really liked any of this shit when I was a kid. And because of like, I grew up in New Hampshire and when I was really little, we had like seven channels. This was, we didn't have cable. I actually grew up when I was, when I was a little kid, we had a black and white TV. (laughs) My parents were like the last people to get a color TV. And so I would watch, um, you know, what were essentially the only kind of horror movies you could see back then on television. I'm talking about like the late seventies, which were either, uh, you know, 1950s science fiction monster movies, or, you know, maybe like, you know, um, you know, 1930s horror films, 1940s horror movies, uh, sometimes a hammer film, uh, or made for TV movies, uh, which, and there are a whole bunch of those that just completely destroyed my brain when I was a little kid. And so it wasn't until I actually saved up money to get a VCR, (laughs) uh, that I, that like, you know, the whole sort of world opened up to me of what the genre, you know, was. And I, and it was really about seeing all these forbidden movies. Then I could finally see, you know, the Texas chainsaw massacre. And, um, but you know, there were these sort of seminal theatrical experiences, you know, that I had as a kid. Um, I saw jaws when I was really little. Um, I went to a revival screening of evil dead, the first evil dead when I was 13 years old with a couple, a couple of friends. Nice. And, um, my dad took me to see an American wealth in London. And, and so by the time I was in, you know, high school, I was fully 
like I was wearing an eraser head t-shirt and would go see every horror movie that would open the, the day it would open. And I actually remember you guys will appreciate that the day evil dead two was released. I got completely baked with a friend of mine and went and saw the very first show. And it was like seeing Jesus or something, that movie. Like it was like, <laughs> it was this sort of seismic shift in my sort of consciousness, seeing that film like that, that, that opening day. But yeah, it's like, it was always there and it was, it was like home video. And then any, any time it would, something would show, you know, whether it was a new movie or whether it was a revival. And, and since my family had moved to the Boston area, there was a lot of theaters that were showing, um, that were showing, you know, revivals. Like that's how I saw, you know, Alien. And um, that's how I saw like a whole bunch of different great horror movies like Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I saw Suspiria in a theater the first time by myself in a virtually empty theater when I was about 16 years old. And so I feel really lucky, you know, that I got to see those. And, and, and also back then there wasn't a lot of context for them. I, there was Fangoria, you know, but there wasn't much else to sort of put it into context, you just, I just had to see what it was, you know? So. Yeah. And, uh, would you say that like, uh, watching, would you say it would be like the universal monsters and things like that's what really got you into the, to the genre when you were younger? Well, it was, so here's the thing. Like when I was growing up, I would read about, you know, that whole generation like, Spiel, uh, you know, baby boomers, Spielberg and Joe Dante, who were making these genre films, John Carpenter, you know, and I wasn't old enough to see, I mean, I saw Jaws, but I wasn't old enough to see, uh, you know, John Carpenter's first few movies until a little bit later. But they were part of this generation that was watching, you know, the science fiction horror movies in the 50s, but they also all got turned on to horror because they all those movies, the classic uh, Universal films, and a lot of those 50s science fiction horror movies, they they came on television in the early 60s in this thing called the Shock Theater package. And basically what it was was like there was a thing called Shock Theater, and I don't remember who hosted it, but it was like, you know, the one of the first horror hosts, if not the first horror host. And this whole generation of kids got turned on to those movies. And when I started to watch horror movies, you know, when I was a kid, those same movies were still on TV. It was like the last gasp in like the late seventies and the early eighties. And that's, yeah, how I saw, I mean, I don't remember seeing Dracula or Frankenstein, but I saw the Wolfman, I saw Hammer films and I saw a whole bunch of different fifties horror movies. This one in particular called the thing that couldn't die, uh, which is remains a pretty obscure movie, but it's about, a severed head that hypnotizes people. <laughs> and like, I, you know, I would sit and watch these movies by myself, right? <laughs> like sort of beamed into my eight year old brain. And so, yeah, it was like, it was those old movies that just sort of, uh, you know, rewired me along with those made for TV movies. Like, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, that, that was a big one. And trilogy of terror. That was another big one for well, um, actually, uh, it's it's funny you just brought up "Are You Afraid of the Dark?" because that's what I wanted to bring up next. Um, the uh, the tale of the haunted woods. Oh, I, you know what I say? Don't don't be don't be afraid of the dark. Is the no? Are you afraid of the dark? There's "Don't Be Afraid of the oh, Dark," right. which is the right. TV okay. movie. Okay, okay, that's what I was talking about. "Are You Afraid you're of the right, Dark" was right. a little you're bit right. later. I, 
but totally got ahead. mixed up. You're correct. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I, I did. I, no, but I oh, said okay. I called her. Thank you for correcting me again. I'm sorry. I'm baked. <laughs> sorry. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll go okay, easy cool. on Thank you, man. you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, I, I thought that the tale of the haunted woods was like the best episode of the newer series, and and that was the one that you wrote. And again, your name popped up to me when I saw it. I'm like, damn, this dude is just these. Whenever your name pops up, it's it's usually I'm not I'm not greasing your wheels, so to speak. I'm just you know I'm like, damn, like every time his name pops up, it's always something I like, and uh, it was cool to see your name attached to that. So uh, like, is it true that the film was canceled because it was going to be too dark? Weren't you attached to that? Yeah, so what happened with the, the feature version of Are You Afraid of the Dark was there was, a, there was a draft that was written by Gary Doberman. And um, they wanted to make the movie, but I think they, they, they needed a rewrite on it. And, um, and I think Gary Doberman was off starting his directing career, you know, with his Annabelle movie. And, and he had sort of become a, a like a, player in Hollywood, you know, he's like, he's like a massive success. So a guy named Ben David Grabinski, um, rewrote the, uh, uh, are you afraid of the dark as a feature? And, uh, he did a fantastic job, um, writing it. And then they had a director, um, named DJ Caruso who got attached to it. And because I had worked with this, you know, this is all very industry stuff. Like I had worked with this, the division of Paramount that was going to make the movie. Um, they asked me to come in because I had written a couple things before for them to sort of, uh, you know, just sort of change it to basically what, how DJ wanted some, some things that were different. So then I did a, a pretty big redraft of it. And, um, but yeah, the movie didn't get made. It, it, it you know, it, it might still get made, but it wasn't that it was because it was too dark. Um, it, it was it was that the TV series started to go at the same time, and I think there was sort of like a conflict of interest there, where they thought, "Well, why don't we wait to see how the TV series does?" Oh, uh, okay, okay. And that led to me then on the second uh, season of the TV series, and Ben David had done the first to come in, and and really my relationship with the are you afraid of the dark second season is is pretty limited I, I i wrote an entirely different version for them originally pitched different version that they went for and indeed <laughs> it was judged as too dark and i, I was kind of like thinking to myself like didn't you just see this movie i made like with the little kid talking about putting the cock in his mouth or whatever <laughs> like it was like I, I i think it was a little bit too dark and uh and so essentially what they did when they made it is they took uh, a different concept that I told them would make a great series, which is this idea of the story of the shadow man. Uh, and so I sort of came up with the concept for that second uh, season of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And then um, another writer who I'd worked with before, um, he it was really his baby. He kind of took that concept that I had come up with and he wrote those whatever it is like six episodes um and sort of rewrote the first one that i had done um and at the end of the day like it was a great experience but yeah maybe i'm not the guy who's got to you know should be writing horror for nine-year-olds <laughs> you know? um were, were you uh, were you a fan of the original series at all 
Yeah, but the original series, because of how old I am, was sort of like, by the time like that Nickelodeon series was on, I was already, you know, getting high and watching, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, you know, so it's sort of like... <laughs> the serious stuff, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, but um, I have a great appreciation for Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, like it's, uh, and I sort of did when when they asked me to work on the feature, I sort of did a crash course where I just watched a ton of them. I read this great book about the making of it, which had like a complete episode guide too. And, um, and, and when, when I was working on the TV show, uh, as well, I was watching a lot of the uh, originals and the, I made sure because it wasn't, I don't think in the first two drafts of the feature, there was much of a callback to the original and my, my version of the feature had all these different monsters and characters from the original series in it that were, that were showing up. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see if they ever make it. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a cool series, like, you know, Hollywood is in such a weird place right now because of the pandemic. I don't know, like people don't know really what to do with, except for Marvel movies, but hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, they'll get to make an Are You Afraid of the Dark feature. And, and we, the whole idea was to sell it that it wasn't for nine-year-olds. It was for like, you know, it was for, it was, it wasn't going to be rated R, but it was like PG-13, you know, like it would, it, yeah, I wrote yeah. a bunch of real scare, scares into it, you know. Yeah, it was a little more edgy than just like the common like kid horror. It's not the house with the clock on its walls. It's it would be a little bit more than that. I totally get you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Well, let's um let's talk about the pact, man, because you know I I I fucking love that movie. Um, it's so funny because when I first saw that movie, I loved it so much, man. I still love it. I I passed that DVD on to so many people. I literally swear to Christ. I told my wife, I'm like, yo, I'm I'm uh, interviewing uh Nick McCarthy for you know the podcast you know he's the director of the pack that she goes oh my god that movie scared the shit out of me when you made me watch it i text my sister and i tell her hey i'm directing you know uh i'm, I'm interviewing the director of the pack nick mccarthy and she goes oh my god i hate that movie it's fucking terrifying and i'm like it, it's like i i liked it and i passed it on and, and it really it, everybody that i know in my circle appreciated it just as much as i do and i thought that that was so like unique and it's uh it, it's such a refreshing horror film um and uh, I actually, during the Sinister commentary, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Scott Derrickson. Um, he mentioned mm-hmm. the pact during during the uh, Sinister commentary, and uh, I actually reached out to him on Twitter, and we kind of had like a back and forth about how amazing the pact was. So I thought that that was like, I thought that that was really cool. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, so is the poster for the film, was that a, with you, you know, being a horror fan, uh, was the poster a nod to A Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> well, the poster, I had nothing to do with, with, uh, the poster because that was actually done. It was done for the, the British release of the movie. And I, you know, and I wasn't involved in it. There's actually an, an earlier poster, which I have framed in, in, in my house, uh, which was just before they made it even before we made the film. Um, and it's this beautiful poster with this image of this little girl looking through, uh, this, you know, sort of opening this door. And, uh, the tagline is some doors should never be open. And I always thought that was very evocative. And for me, um, you know, that, that moment in a nightmare on Elm street that you're talking about is like, as like a mega fan of a nightmare on Elm street, like I was sort of like, Oh, nightmare on Elm street. But actually it was the poster for the frighteners 
which is what is what I mm. thought of when I when I saw the poster. Totally, I, you know, totally. I, I frankly never, yeah, right. And I I frankly never liked the 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 poster that they went with. And I think, um, but I do. I, you know, one of the the really cool things with that movie was that, you know, it came out at this time when physical media was still like a thing, like streaming was you know in its infancy really, and the people who financed the movie um, would send me different, uh, you know, sort of releases of the Blu-ray and DVD of that movie from all over the world. And I have like a Japanese one and, and a, a, you know, German one and a French one. And there's a German one that is that cover, but they did like, I think it's a, you know, it's like a, it's one of those like slip cases, you know, slip cover. And, mm-hmm. It's, it's an embossed, it's that face, but like embossed, like coming out, you know, uh, which I thought was really wild. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like Nightmare on Elm Street is a movie that, you know, in that particular scene in a Nightmare on Elm Street might be my famous, my, my favorite scene in, in that movie. And that was a, uh, that was a huge, huge movie for me when I was a kid. And it's a film that just recently I've watched several times because there was something else I was writing and I kind of kept thinking about it. But I think it's cool that you made that association, but no, that I didn't have anything to do with it. Okay. Well, I mean, and once you mentioned the Frighteners though, bam, I saw that too. So it's, it's kind of one in the same. I totally get that. I totally saw the Frighteners too, that that never even popped into my mind though. Um, but, uh, so, but but back again to your, uh, to, you know, your, your being a horror fan, um, in, in the commentary to the pact, um, you, you know, had you mentioned how there's uh, some nods to Suspiria and opera, some specific scenes, and you talked a yeah. lot about Argento and Jallos. Uh, are you a fan of like other Jallos and Jallo directors as well, like Sergio Martino and Aldo Lado, you know, and people like that? Yeah, I mean, Martino in, in particular, like the, the more you watch those movies that he made, you know, that run of Jallo films that he made in the, the early to mid 70s, it's they just keep getting better and and one of the things as like, a, um, as a, as someone who so much of horror is experienced on home video, right. It's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. watching something at home on Blu-ray or I guess like, you know, on shutter, those films were so, um, they, they weren't really well like understood when I was young and sort of coming up and watching you know, bootlegs of Italian movies. Like that's how I had to see a lot of Argento films. Like I actually remember opera was like when I was a teenager was like the new Argento movie that I had read about. And it was released in Italy. And I used to trade VHS tapes with this guy who had a lot of rare shit. And I remember he sent me the very first home video release of opera. And it was they, I guess when they, they had made two versions of the film in, uh, or they had released two versions of the film in Italy and they basically cut it down. So it could be like, you know, basically like a PG 13 rating. Oh, wow. So the first time I saw opera, it was on a VHS that looked like it was from a fucking 19th generation. Like it looked like shit <laughs> and it was cut and it also didn't have any English. It was in Italian. And I sat there and like watched that movie, like like that tape, like over and over and over. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think for me, again, it's a similar story to a lot of other horror fans. Like I saw Suspiria 
And so then I went back and started to watch the other Argento movies. And that led me to the Jalo films, you know, because that's like the, those movies are like, they're sort of like the fucking gateway drug, right. Of, of, uh, yeah, Jalo, that, yeah, absolutely. The Argento movies. And so as those films were getting released first on DVD and then Blu-ray, you know, it's just like, you sort of get to know the language of them, you know? And I think when mm -hmm. I made the pact, the idea of, it was sort of like, um, you know, that movie, which I wrote very quickly was, it was sort of like, I used to do this thing with a friend of mine where we would get together every Thursday night, we'd have a movie night, you know, and we would make a lot of margaritas and I would <laughs> like always program a double feature, you know? And he was a guy who wasn't necessarily a horror fan, but he was interested in anything that I wanted to watch. Like he just was like, he was this really good dude. He would just like, he just appreciates movies. And so for years before I ever made a movie, I just would show him and, you know, and a lot of times I'd be seeing these things for the first time, like, yeah, like Sergio Martino films, like we'd watch Torso or, you know, or Case the Scorpion's Tale or whatever. And we'd also watch slasher movies and we'd also watch supernatural horror movies and like the J-horror films. And that movie, The Pact, it's sort of like, it's kind of like looking back on it, it's a little bit like if you made a low budget version of kind of a movie like The Ring, where there's like something supernatural happening to someone, there's like some, you know, seemingly malevolent ghost. And then 20 minutes before the end of the movie, it becomes a slasher movie. You know, <laughs> you know, right, and, right, uh, right. when I made the when I made the movie, my friend who we used to do these movie nights with, um, he's told me that the movie felt like uh, a sum total of everything we had watched over the past like five years, you know. <laughs> but yeah, but Jalo films were like, a you know, I continue to, to be a huge fan of them. Uh, agreed. And Argento was also my gateway as well. Um, right. I, uh, yeah, I think uh, Suspiria, uh, Suspiria. And then I did the whole animal trilogy after that. I did Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Cat of Nine Tails, and the uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And uh, yeah, and then honestly, like you just said, like you've been a fan since. That's like the biggest thing for me. Like my horror, ever since Argento, my Italian horror just blew up. Like half of my collection of movies is like all Italian. And I'm like, besides actual horror, Italian horror, like, well, I'm not saying actual horror, but besides like, you know, like eighties horror and things like that. Like the, the majority of my collection is like kind of overtaken, overtaken by the Italian horror films. So it's really funny because it's like, it's like, it is, it's like a drug. Once you watch them, even though you know the formula, there's always, you know, there's always like the, you know, the, there's always attractive people in the films. There's always stories that compel you. There's always the murder mystery element. You know, there's always the good, uh, some of the kills are going to be off the wall, you know? So yeah, like the Argento yeah. definitely hooked me as well. And I'm, I'm a lifelonger because of it. Like I, I love Jallos. Um, but, uh, okay. Anyway, like, let me move on. <laughs> um, so the pact started as an 11 minute short film. Uh, and I actually, I watched that. Um, and, uh, you explained that the short film was more of a metaphor, whereas the feature length version is more literal. Now, what made you want your first horror film to be the pact? Like what about the story made you say, this is going to be my breakthrough film? Well, the strange thing about it, and I might've even talked about this on that commentary was that like I, when I did the short, I didn't intend it to be a feature, you know, like, and for so many years, you know, I just sort of, would, I would make short films and I would just watch a lot of movies. 
and I would started writing scripts and I was trying to figure out how movies got made. And, you know, the years were going on and I didn't really know how, you know, it's like, it's just this big mystery of like, how do you get a movie made? And I think when I did the short film of the pact, I made this, this great decision in retrospect, I didn't you know, know it was a great decision at the time, which was that at that time I was like, I was married, I had a little kid um, and I had like credit card debt. I was, you know, barely getting by uh, with the, you know, the, with the job that I had. And I, you know, I had this dream of making movies and, you know, any sort of normal, rational person would have given up on their dream at the, at the place <laughs> that I was at, you know, <laughs> but I wrote that, um, script for the short, which, you know, which was like 10 pages long. Um, and, and I gave it to my friend, Sam, the same guy who would do those movie nights with, and he had produced a short that I had done before that produced meaning, you know, he made some phone calls and, I, you know, that short had cost $600 or something. And I, you know, I gave him $600 and he said, I like this. It's really creepy. And I suppose if I really thought about it, I could remember where it came from, but I liked this idea about this, just a character piece about this woman who is kind of using the idea of, uh, you know, her, her recently deceased mother as a sort of, that her ghost is there is almost like comfort when she's denying the fact that this woman used to, uh, you know, physically abuse her. And so the difference between that short and the other ones I had made before was, you know, it's the second time I was working with Bridger Nielsen, my DP. And this time I said to him, I want to shoot it like, uh, like a horror film and Bridger didn't really know too many horror movies. And I showed him scenes from Suspiria and I, I had, I remember I showed him a scene in um, the Antonioni movie blow up because Antonioni, while his films are, you know, have a sort of pretentiousness uh, and they're, they're very much art films with a capital a, there's this great chilly, creepy atmosphere to them. And I was like, I want to create this. And I didn't really even know the tools of how to do it. I would just say, I want the camera to do something like this. And, and Bridger would say, well, that's a dolly shot, <laughs> you know, like and a specific kind of dolly, you know what I mean? And what happens was that, uh, that fucking short film, I had taken all that stuff that I had distilled from Argento and Carpenter and I had sort of put it into this little movie and I made something scary and I didn't think, I didn't realize I had that power in a way until I watched the movie. It got into Sundance and I went to Sundance and I was sitting there. Uh, it was a midnight screening. It played before a feature and I was sitting there. It's this packed audience. And at the end of that short, when uh, Jewel stayed, the actress walks towards this door, you could just hear a fucking pin drop in that theater. And it's because, I had watched all these movies from the thirties and in, in those old horror movies, they didn't really understand where to score, put music because like sound was like a new thing. Right, right. So there's those scenes in those movies that are just like dead silent. And I, and I, at some point I was watching one of those movies and I was like, 
this is so strange, you know, like that there's nothing. So I told the guy who mixed the sounds for that pack short, who was this like Emmy award winning guy who was, you know, doing this thing as a favor for me. When she walks to the doorway, I said, just take everything out, you know, except for her footsteps. And then we, we recorded, it wasn't even Jewel. It was like some woman who was there at the post house breathing. And I remember this, this, uh, sound mixer said to me, you can't just have that. You have to have something more. And I was like, well, let's just do it, you know, and see if it's like nothing except for the footsteps and the breathing. And we did that. And it was immediately apparent, like this was really scary. And, uh, so when that screened, uh, and I saw with an audience, I realized in a way what I had probably been working my whole life to, which was like, oh, I can do this. And, then when I did the feature, I think I was like, okay, what I want to do is make the movie that I wanted to see when I was 15 years old. You know, like I want to make a really scary, fucked up supernatural movie, but I also want to make a slasher movie. And that was the difference between the sort of, that sort of meta- metaphoric little character piece. And then I was like, at the end of the day, like all I've ever wanted to do is horror movies. And that's, so that's what I did, you know? So I don't know if it answers your question, but yeah. No, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and uh, and and again, the pack, which is the the feature, you know, both of them really, but the the feature one works so well, and uh, that was something that I actually wanted to bring up next is that um, you know, you had uh, mentioned that Bad Ronald, uh, that movie from this night from nineteen seventy four, I believe that that was yeah. kind of what like gave you the idea and besides that film besides that one um i can think of maybe an episode of supernatural that i was a fan of back in the early 2000s where there was the whole like somebody living in the house when it's really supposed to be haunted and that's why like the pact really worked and those things like bad ronald you know he wasn't you know like hiding in the walls like that but like people just being in the house um when it's you're thinking it's a haunting and it's not um that tends to like back then it worked the pack that's what stood out about it. it was like holy shit you're not expecting that the dude's in the house like you think it's just a, whole, a paranormal movie and i just feel that like that's lost its like grip nowadays like you got movies like the boy and even housebound where like it's just becoming more and more cliche where it's just yeah now every time you watch a ghost movie it's almost like now nah, it's not haunted there's probably somebody in the wall or something do you feel that way as well <laughs> well i don't know you know i mean i think there's something that happens when um, like people are sort of watching all the same stuff, you know, um, whether it's new movies or sometimes whether it's like, you know, a bunch of stuff is getting released, you know, on Blu-ray or something where it's like, there, there's like, there's something that, that just kind of gets in the air. And I think when I wrote that, like that twist, I, I had been thinking for years about that idea of, I had just this idea in my head years before about that someone is doing a seance and it tells them that there's a per- that there's actually a physical person there. And like, and that was the thing that I wanted to do. I remember, um, housebound, I think was, I don't know if it was made concurrently, but it was like very soon afterwards. Um, the boy I think was definitely a ripoff, <laughs> but, but I think that yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way like, I, but I can't fault this guy because the truth is maybe he didn't see the pact, you know, like maybe it's just the stuff gets out there because then there's the idea that someone says, did you see this movie where this happens? And someone takes it. You know, what was actually funny is like the, I met, uh, Brent, the guy who directed the boy 
because if someone I knew knew him and, uh, and she is like, Oh, you should meet my other friend who directs horror movies. And, um, and so I hadn't seen the boy. And so I, you know, I, I, I watched it because I knew I was going to meet him and we got to that ending and I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, like this is going to be awkward, but like, you know, I'd never talked to him about it because I, I don't <laughs> think he had ever seen the movie, you know? So, you know, I, I, you know, ripping off is flattery. And I also don't think that ripping off always, it's not as clean as like someone just saw something and they're imitating it. Sometimes it's just something that's just like out there, you know? Yeah, that's true. And I guess, you know, like you said, it's probably an innocent thing from their perspective. But when you watch as many movies as someone like I do and you start to see it pop up more and more, it becomes more of a problem for like people yeah. like me, not necessarily <laughs> the casual viewer, you know, who doesn't see all, who doesn't see it all the time. So I could totally see that. But uh, again, from besides the uh, besides the whole surprise that there's someone living in the in the house. Um, that that works really well. I thought that what what other what else worked really well was that there's no cheap jump scares in it. There are jump scares, but it's those impactful scares that like sit with you and rattle you. They're not those little like oh shit, and then like five seconds later you're over it. Like there you're sitting with that shit when it happens. And I can compare that to kind of like the changeling those 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 rattling scares. And I guess like you got that from your knowledge and just what you've taken in over the years. I'm guessing because for like a first movie you nailed that. You didn't just rely on no cheap pop scares yeah and and jump scares are are interesting because when they work like for me you know some of the best and you know most memorable moments in horror films are the jump scares like i'm thinking of like you know when i was a kid seeing jaws um the shark pop out and but in particular ben gardner's head popping out of that boat like just fucking masterfully done um and that was a reshoot that Spielberg did himself with his own money to like, because he knew he wanted to have that moment like that. Um, and also American world in London. Um, and I think like there are those, and I think in those Ari Aster movies, there's a couple of those too, where you're just like, they completely sort of leave you sort of unmoored, unanchored in this movie. Cause you're like, what the fuck's going to happen? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I think, you know, jump scares have a bad reputation because um, when they don't work, audiences can resent them because they feel the mechanics of the movie. And I also think that when horror sort of got to sort of hit the mainstream in a big way again in the 2000s, there was a lot of horror movies made by people maybe who just weren't horror fans and, and, and they would manufacture jump scares, like sometimes not the directors, but like the producers like in the edit and stuff like that and and what happens is like after a while you can smell it like that this is like you know oh that was cheap you know yeah but when they work the you know the it's like it's it's just candy you know yeah, I, I can agree with that. Yeah, there, there's plenty of jump scares that definitely that definitely get me. The the one that I think I think the greatest jump scare for me, if I'm gonna, I'm just gonna throw this out there real quick, is uh, from Neil Marshall's The Descent, um, when uh, the the main the main oh, the yeah. main uh, the main female actress, I can't remember her name in the movie or the actress's name, but she's standing in the window, looking out the window, and then like the pipe flies through the window. It's like her nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it gets yes, pierced. Yeah, by that, that thing. shit. Dude, every time I watch it, I know it's coming, and it still gets me. And it's like, yeah, I can't criticize that because that when they're when they're intentional because they know it works that's one thing when you're relying on that that's another thing um but uh so you had said that 
that the the house that the pact was filmed in was abandoned so that was like a godsend because you could do like whatever you wanted with the place but i wanted to ask you was there any downside to that like did the water not work or were there any like technical issues with <laughs> the place that caused issues while filming that's interesting so like that that house was on this property that was this um it, it was where this like sort of mega church had been. <laughs> it was like one of these sort of n- like nouveau Christian, basically like ripoff artists, like, you know, <laughs> like this preacher and his wife had had this chapel there. And I think the way that some of these places work is that they, because it's not for profit, they have to sort of um, shore it up. And so they had a couple of houses on this property where they had the, the church that were um, uh, halfway houses. They were, they were for recovering, you know, drug addicts. Um, and the the way that we found it was that the the producer of the pact, Ross Dinnerstein's father, was in real estate and had recently done a deal with a group of people to buy this group of buildings, basically this giant lot. And they were going to just bulldoze the whole thing. And I don't know what's there now. I should, I should drive over. You know, it's not still not too far from me. It's probably like 45 minutes away. And it's like, they, they probably put up like condos or something. Right. And, but there was, uh, yeah, this house and, um, no, there wasn't a downside. The, the only downside was there wasn't a basement, you know? And so we built the basement in the garage, you know? And okay. Okay. It, it, it really was, a like this amazing thing. One of the, 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 the ways that we, I remember structured that movie is that, you know, there's a point when they sort of bust through this wall into the secret room. Right. And the production designer, uh, Walter Barnett, he, he actually built a wall over that room that had to stay up for the first like half of the shoot. And we shot basically everything around that section of the movie first. And then when, when Katie like busts through that wall, she's actually busting through, you know, it's like a piece of drywall or something that has been put up with like, you know, a frame to it and everything, but it it was wallpapered and it was like, it was like a one take thing, you know, where she was going to smash through that. And then we had two cameras, I think, you know, one on the outside and one on the inside. So we could see, you know, her opening up this thing. And, um, and then we could shoot everything inside the secret room. So like when we made the movie, we actually, you know, halfway through the film, just like in the actual running time of the movie opened up this room and then we're able to like shoot inside of it. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw during the commentary, you had mentioned that the door was, uh, was put there and, you know, built in and yeah, that's crazy that you were, it's, it's the movie trickery, you know, how you're able to just, uh, change the place around. Um, uh, so Annie played by, uh, Katie lots. She has that badass vibe to her. Like, you know, she rocks the wife beaters and drives a motorbike yet. She can be vulnerable. And, you know, so I got to ask you, were you kind of using your love of Ripley and Sarah Connor to write Annie as a character? (laughs) Yeah. I actually remember like, the temp score for that movie. Um, I used a bunch of aliens, like the James Horner score for aliens, which by the way, when you're making a movie as low budget as that, and then you put that kind of music for the composer to try to do something with, it's like, (laughs) but no, yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember when we were like, you know, casting, 
the whole thing was to find someone who had that innate toughness, which of course, you know, Sigourney Weaver does, did, you know? And when Katie came in, she was like the one person we saw who was like that. Like, it, it's like, you can't cast that. She just had that. Like, she just was like, she's just like that, that girl is hard, you know, like she just has this sort of hardness to her. And, and, um, and it was really cool. And I remember as soon as she came in, I just knew right away. And I said that that's her. Um, and I think we, you know, we saw other people, you know, I remember Michael Bean was going to be in that movie. Um, and there was a whole insane thing. Well, I mean, I've never told this story. Like, so the producer of the movie had just made a movie with Michael Bean called the divide. Um, and so he had a good relationship with Michael and I had, you know, never made a feature before. And then this thing was going to get made. It was really exciting. And Ross was like, well, I really think we should consider putting Michael Bean in it because, you know, it would be good for the, you know, the movie. And I was like, Michael Bean, like, fuck yeah. Like that sounds great, you know? And, um, so then I remember Ross was like, well, he's not going to just come in an audition, you know, cause this is the guy who was in fucking, you know, these fucking Cameron movies and tombstone. And like, you know, it's like, so it's like, so you should just have lunch with them. And I was like, all right. So we go to this place in Hollywood to have lunch and, and Michael comes in with his wife and which was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sits down with me and because I knew that like most people probably would talk to him about aliens, you know, or, you know, like, like the movies that are like his most famous movies, the Terminator. Like I was like, what am I going to talk to him about? You know? And so I watched the movie rampage, which was a eighties movie that he did with William Friedkin, sort of an obscure William Friedkin movie, which is mostly a courtroom drama, about a serial killer. And, um, and I, because, you know, I wanted to ask him about something that he doesn't get asked about. Right. And so I'm sitting there and, Michael Bean is like, has this like serious sort of like method intensity. He's one of these guys who's always like really serious. And, and um, I was like, you know, what was it like to work with William Friedkin? One of the legendary directors. And this sort of stirs something in Michael Bean. And he's like, Billy would, he played these tricks on me. He kept playing these tricks on me, these practical jokes that he thought was funny. And I didn't think it was fucking funny. And he starts telling me this story about how like William Friedman, they kept sort of fucking with him in some ways on the set of this movie. And as he's telling the story, it's like reaching the climax, which was something about William Friedkin playing some trick on him, which he felt like humiliated him or something. And Michael Bean is like leaning forward across the table and saying, as he's telling the story to me, so I said to him, Billy, don't you fucking do this ever again. And he's like screaming at me as if I'm William Friedkin, <laughs> right? And I'm, and I'm sitting there just like frozen. And I'm like, Michael Bean is, you know, and, and then I look and Chris Helmsworth is sitting in the restaurant looking at us, <laughs> right? And then over at another table is Joe Dante. Oh, nice. And I was like, okay, this is, I, I am, I'm definitely in Hollywood at this moment. So, but yeah, we did, we ended up not doing, uh, 
Michael Bean. And that's how, and then we ended up, we didn't cast the role and we were shooting and that's how Casper Bean Van Dien came in. And that was a whole other, just totally weird thing, like working with him. I mean, he's a really good guy. Um, but it was just so surreal working with him, you know, because all I could think of was Starship Troopers like the entire time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That and Sleepy Hollow for sure. <laughs> he always stood out of Sleepy in Sleepy sure. Hollow to me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, let's get into talking about The Prodigy, man, because um, we want to cover that as well. Um, uh, my first question for you is, I want to know, was The Prodigy inspired by the Cujo novel at all that you know? Because when I first saw the film, that's what I thought of. Because in the Cujo novel, you know, it's hinted at that Cujo's possessed by the serial killer from the dead zone, Frank Dodd. So the whole, like, you know, the whole serial killer transferring uh, to another person thing. I was like, I wonder if Cujo had any say in that. Do you know? You know, because I know you didn't really write the film, but do you know if that was any, uh, uh, if there was any, like, idea behind it? That's amazing. I mean, I read Cujo when I was a kid. I don't remember that. Um, uh, Jeff Bueller wrote the movie and Jeff, Jeff's like done so much. Uh, and I had met him before I had done anything. He, he directed the movie, the mid, or, I'm sorry, he wrote the movie, the midnight Mid me train. Mm -hmm. And when I met him, I was like, Oh my God, you just wrote like an adaptation of a Clive Barker story. And then years went by. And then I, when I directed a couple movies, I was given the script. Uh, which was called Descendant, which Jeff had written as a, you know, it's called a spec. Like he wrote it for free because he had been, a, a, you know, working screenwriter writing, you know, basically, you know, like horror reboots. Like I think in the same year he wrote the Grudge reboot, the Jacob's Ladder reboot, and the Pet Cemetery. Oh damn! Reboot, right, <laughs> and and so he really wanted to write an original horror movie, and he really wanted to write an uh, an evil kid film, and I. I got the script years before we made the movie. And what I really wanted to do with that film was to direct someone else's script. And I wanted to direct a studio movie, you know, like I wanted to have that experience to see what it would be like. And um, I remember reading the script, which was the essentials of that original script were like what ended up on the screen, the prodigy. But there was like, there's a lot that ended up getting changed through working with Jeff. And then when production, we, you know, like we were like rewriting stuff. But it was the scene, the hypnotism scene, where the kid says this completely filthy X-rated thing. And then that the lead character decides she's going to like, basically like murder a disabled woman to like get, <laughs> to get like her son back. And it just felt so perverted to me. Like I was like, and I said, I want to make this movie. <laughs> His... His, his, like, I think where the mythology came from with, with him is, was probably the movie Audrey Rose. There was not a serial killer who was possessing the kid in Audrey Rose. Um, but I think when I talked to Jeff, I can't remember, because Jeff is one of these guys where, like, he's seen every horror movie. And one of the first times I talked to him, I said, you have this hypnotism scene. And I was like, I want to do this movie because that hypnotism scene reminds me of the hypnotism scene in The Exorcist. And that's one of my favorite scenes in The Exorcist. It's like a small scene in the first like 40 minutes of the movie where Regan, you know, they, she does this thing where her hand is up. Mm -hmm. And that's where she grabs the the, the uh, psychiatrist by the balls, right? Right, right. Um, and I love that scene. I love the way that, that the, the, the way that room looks. 
in the way she looks and the, the music in that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in, in any horror movie. And I said to Jeff, like, it's great. This is like this expanded version of that hypnotism scene in The Exorcist. And Jeff said, there's a hypnotism scene in The Exorcist? Like, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> no know. Shit. You know like, he didn't remember, you know. Um, but because Jeff is brilliant and he works really fast and he comes up with stuff. And I don't think he ever... He had read about this idea of people who were, you know, that someone would be reincarnated inside of a, a you know, kid it, because it was, it's, and it's talked about in the movie and there's a little bit of video footage of these, these people who claim that their child was reincarnated, was the reincarnated soul of like a fighter pilot in World War II, right? And there was a book written about it. I think he had maybe was hip to that and that's what motivated him to, to write it. But man, no, that blows my mind. Cujo, I've completely forgotten. That was the movie that, that's, I'm sorry, the book that Stephen King wrote, like completely coked out of his brain. That was the <laughs> one that he said he doesn't remember writing because he was so high. Correct. Absolutely correct. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't uh, bring that up because the movie totally like just disregards all that. It's just a dog with rabies. So yeah, like that's why I was like, whoever wrote the prodigy did their homework. If that is a nod to Cujo, but either way, yeah, I, either way, the story works. No, um, <laughs> no, we didn't do our homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I met, uh, Jackson Robert Scott at uh, a horror convention, Monster Mania, a few years ago. And, dude, he was, like, the most awesome little kid ever. What was it like working with him? Jackson's just fascinating. I mean, he's really gifted. Um, and what's remarkable about him is that he would uh, – he couldn't be more different than when the, when the camera was off. And sometimes it would be like we'd have some scene that would be really intense where he would be crying – and I, you know, I'd be sort of leaned in and then I would say like, okay, cut. And then he would just spring to life and like be <laughs> dancing. And like, I mean, he was, he was, uh, he's an incredible actor, really special little kid. And, um, and there was a moment I think that where we, we thought maybe we'd lose him. Like we, we, we couldn't get him for the movie. And it was, it was a heartbreaking thing. Cause it was like, we just can't imagine that movie without him, you know? But, um, yeah, Jackson, Jackson was amazing. And, um, and like, you know, my kid is about the same age as Jackson and she came to set and like the two of them would hang out and they, um, they did like just in, we were both in the same hotel room or uh, hotel room, hotel. We were in the same hotel room. We we're in the same hotel. Um, Jackson and his mom were like downstairs and my daughter and Jackson, like, you know, when, when Jackson wasn't working, made one of those iMovie trailers. That's like the fake horror trailer. Have you seen this? I don't know. It's like, yeah, kids do yeah. this, right? And yeah, and they made they made a horror movie trailer with Jackson. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? it was like, it was like the, we should have put it as like an extra on the Blu-ray. Like it was like, they, they did this thing, you know? Cause that's the weird thing is at the end of the day, you work with like a child actor and it's, it's when they're performing, it's, it's sometimes easy to forget that they're kids because they have this sort of intensity, you know? Yeah. I mean, he did, he did such a great job playing both roles in that film. And, uh, he did this between the two it films. Uh, was he already in mind for this role or was, was it uh, like an audition process? Well, he did come in an audition. Um, he, we, it was a thing where we, um, the, the auditions originally were like self tapes, for these kids. And I just saw so many kids who like at home would do scenes. And then 
seeing Jackson, I, you know, I sort of sent word through his parents, like, we'll have him do it again, but try it like this. And he did that a couple times. And then he, he doesn't live in LA and he, him and his, I think dad came to LA and, um, and that was like the final audition. Um, so yeah, I mean, he had done it. And so we knew him from it. And I think, I think he hadn't shot his scenes for it too. Yeah. Yeah. But basically because all, you know, those it films were also shot in Toronto, just like the prodigy. And then I think his lock and key show was shot in Toronto. Like basically that family is like ensconced in that, in that city now, you know? Yeah. Uh, in the movie, he wears a lion shirt. Was that supposed to be intentional because he's a Leo? Ha! No, I, I, I asked for that because I thought it was a sort of piece of symbolism, you know, like, I like this idea of putting this ferocious animal on this cute little kid because of what he, what he was, you know? Um, yeah, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't know he was a Leo. And, uh, the other thing I thought was really interesting is the language you were talking about from the, uh, hypnotism scene. He speaks Hungarian where that's not a normal one. It gets chosen. Like where, where, where did Hungarian get chosen from? You know, I, I, that was all from Jeff Bueller. And I think I remember joking with him about like, how's this movie going to play over there? You know, like, <laughs> you know? Um, but we had someone who, you know, coached him on that, uh, uh, like on the Hungarian dialogue. And the thing about Jackson is like, he would, he knew all of his dialogue from every scene, like just always, like he had this capacity to just fill his brain with that stuff, you know? Um, so he was great, you know, and I think the the little song that he sings, the melody that he hums, um, Joe Bashara, the composer, had written that for us before we shot the movie, and so we had it on set for him to learn so he could hum it, you know. So he had, uh, you said you had somebody on set that spoke Hungarian, so that really was like a rare, like dialect. Or, I think or no, was it just kind of messed around I, with. I think it might have been, I, I actually can't remember now how, what we did with that. I think maybe the guy who was doing that had, maybe he changed it a little bit. Just kind of made his own it's all, version. It's all, yeah, or maybe it just is straight Hungarian. You'd have to ask someone who can speak Hungarian. Yeah, and uh, the end of the movie, it feels like a nod to the omen. Like, and it's, it's a really dark route that it went, you know, most, most movies would have just had the kid's soul and body re reconnected in the final scenes, but like not here. I, I definitely like the route it took. It, it doesn't end how you think it's going to end. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, this was a studio film, um, but it was for a, a, like a division of MGM. MGM is already a small studio and it was just a division of MGM. And so I don't want to say we were left alone, but the process was not like there weren't so many people that were hands on with it. And I kind of wondered, like going into, you know, you do these test screenings, you know, like how, how, how are people going to react to this? And you never know, like we showed the movie to the head of the studio um, before we did the test screenings. And it was like, you know, a sort of rough cut of the movie. And I was sitting there in this screening room. It's a terrifying experience for a filmmaker to, you know, this guy in a suit sitting in the back, you know, next to a phone that he can make a phone call at any time. Like literally there's a phone there. And, uh, that guy, Gary Barber, um, he really liked the movie. He didn't talk about the ending. 
um, he had a couple of uh, notes. And one of them was like um, that the murder of the woman at the end, Margaret St. John, um, I think that's the character's name, uh, played by uh, my friend Brittany. Um, he said that murder is so disturbing the primary, like there's a majority female audience for horror. I guess that's statistically the, the way it is. He said, you might want to think about toning that down. And so I sort of nodded my head and I said, okay. And then of course I didn't fucking touch it. If anything, we made it more disturbing. And, and then we screened it and that was one of the highest rated scenes from the audience. Cause they're all surveyed. It was like her, her murder. The ending though, what basically the, the people who do these, like, you know, they, they run focus groups and, they look at all the cards concluded after two screenings of the film is that if we had a different ending, people would have been more satisfied with the movie they say. And I remember being on this conference, like we're in a conference room and there's like a conference call and the guy from like the place that, you know, does the survey, uh, you know, surveys the whole audience and has kind of distilled everything. It's like, you know, it's like market research. And he was saying on like the speakerphone, he's like, maybe if he had an ending where like the spirit of the kid came out and then, uh, you know, and, and, and you could see the serial killer and then the lead wrestled the serial killer and killed. And then she was reunited with her son like that, you know, that would, that would be really satisfying. You might be able to get the score like from 70 to 80 or whatever, you know? And, um, I, I really, you know, leave it to the uh, the fact that the head of Orion, this guy, John Hageman, he just was like, no, fuck it. I'm not going to spend any more money in this movie. And I like the ending. I think it's cool and fucked up. And like, he just was sort of like, at the end of the day, the movie, I think was, it was scoring well enough. And John is a little twisted. The guy who he's not, he's no longer the head of a rep. He's little, he's just had his little twisted sort of mind. And that's one of the things he liked about the film was that it was dark. And so he just left it alone. And of course that was one of the things I liked was that it like, it ends on this dark note. So. Yeah. And uh, you said you wanted to uh, get a chance to experience the studio process. Now that you've went through that, uh, how, how did you like the studio process overall? Well, I think I had a good experience on that film you know um but i you know it's it's going to be different for a different project it's going to you know i've i've other friends who shall remain unnamed who've made studio movies who left you know battered and bruised and you know saddened that their thing got butchered you know um you know and and of course i would make another one <clears throat> if it was the right thing <clears throat> but for me, it was just all about having that experience and seeing what it was like. It's not that I like, that's the thing. It's like at the end of the day, if I can just have a career making a series of kind of interesting horror movies, that's fucking good enough for me. I mean, like I remember seeing David Cronenberg speak years ago and he, he was talking about his career and he said, yeah, I guess I've made a career out of being an obscure director. That's, that's <laughs> what he said. And I was, and I was sitting there and I was like, you know, Cronenberg was one of my heroes. And I just was thinking that's, what I want to be, you know, is I want to be the guy who made a career out of being an obscure director. And it's, which by the way, you know, when you're say like married, your wife doesn't want to hear that, you know, <laughs> like, but, um, but so, you know, so we'll see. Uh, just so you know, guys, I have just a few minutes here because I have someone coming over. Okay. Uh, so I'll ask you one more question here. You, you've talked about all of our favorite directors, Argento, Carpenter, Cronenberg, who is your favorite director? 
there is a, there isn't a favorite director now. And, and like, um, I can't, I, I, I would never be so, you know, arrogant to say that there's this one that I return to. Cause you know, you've got that Dawn of the Dead box set behind you. And it's sort of like when I watched Dawn of the Dead this last year, I watched it twice this last year. I see that movie and I'm like, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's maybe the best horror movie ever made, you know? And then um, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street twice. And I said, this is, this is such an incredible movie, right? And then I watched, um, to throw you a curveball, the original Cat People, the Val Luton film, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was like, this, this is my favorite horror movie. And all of those movies are, have great directors, whether it's Jacques Turner or, or George Romero or whoever, you know, and movies come together from, you know, especially now that I'm making it, they come together through just a set of circumstances. And there are some directors who can hold it together and have a filmography where, on the whole, most of their stuff is great, right? But that is a rarity. And, you know, Romero thrived in the, the 70s and the movies he made in the 70s and into the early 80s, you know, are like, are masterful and, and amazing. And he's one of my favorite directors. You'd say the same thing about Carpenter. Um, so for me, it's always like, they're just a series of inspirations. There's not just, there's not just one. However, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Suspiria, and uh, Dawn of the Dead, in terms of modern horror, maybe along with Night of the Living Dead, I think are the, the masterpieces of the I genre. I mean, those are some solid choices. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, not, not like controversial <laughs> at all, I realize. You know? And uh, lastly, uh, what projects uh, do you have coming up and where can people uh, follow you on social media to keep up with your projects? Well, you can find me on Instagram, which I do poorly at, but I'm there. And, um, you know, since the prodigy, uh, I, I've been a screenwriter. I've been, I've done a bunch of stuff that people haven't seen because I've been, I've been, you know, what they call a, a script doctor for horror movies. I wrote a horror movie for Tyler Perry, <laughs> you know, um, I, I've done a bunch of stuff that was great. It's one of the things in my career that I've always wanted to do, but a lot of that work sort of, you know, I, I was working on stuff through the pandemic. I wrote a movie for Adam Robitel. I don't know if that'll ever, you know, get made. Um, I just worked on this uh, horror comedy called The Blackening, which they just shot. Um, but now what I really want to do is to make a, a fucking real horror movie, you know, again. And so right now there's a script I wrote called I Have Bad Dreams um, that we thought we would make it this year with James Wan. He's a producer on it. And it's, I'm so proud of the script. It's the most twisted, disturbing thing. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have not wanted to make it so far, but we'll see if we can make that. And then another thing that I've been working on is I made an Easter short film for a horror anthology called Holidays. And I've been working with a, a, a guy, the guy who owns the rights to it, who was the producer of that and was, and was the head of Orion Pictures on doing a feature version of Easter. Um, and, and then I'm also, like right before I was talking to you guys, I'm, I'm also writing another spec that's a, a totally twisted horror movie um, that's all about... Um, well, I don't want to say, but it, it's all about meditation and trance and uh, a kind of seance. Um, but, you know, so 
I think 2022, you know, this is, this is the year I'll get back behind a camera and, and make something and I'm psyched for it. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear. And, uh, we just wanted to thank you again for joining us today. It's been a blast talking to you. Yes. Thank you, Nick. Oh yeah. And like I said, I'm, I'm super into the, the, uh, the episode I listed of your, uh, of your podcast. I greatly appreciated strain wreck <laughs> as a, uh, thank you. as a concept. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Great to meet you guys. Thank you. It was good talking to you, Nick. We appreciate you. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in to our debut episode of season two. And thanks again to Nicholas McCarthy for being our first guest this season. It was awesome to have a Jalo fan on, and he really wants to do a really scary movie next, and we're all fucking here for it. Oh, yeah, man. Let's do it. And join us next week when we have fucking Hail Satan, bro. <laughs> Joshua Michael. Uh, that's uh, from the Righteous Gemstones, but we're going to be talking to him about Last Shift, and uh, I'll work in some Righteous Gemstone talk as well. And uh, everybody out there, make sure to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at High on Horror 420. Uh, you can email us at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. Also, check out our website, highonhorror.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll get guest announcements and our latest episodes sent directly to your inbox. And uh, we'd like to thank Josh again, as always, for editing and producing our messes here. And uh, I think that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later. Bye, everybody.